Macro Fab Engineering Podcast. I am your guest, Danny Rankin. And we are your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. This is episode 171. Danny Rankin is an instructor in the Technology, Arts, and Media, TAM, program at the University of Colorado Boulder. Both the courses he teaches and his individual research reflect a diverse array of expertise, including graphic design, material fabrication, game design, hardware hacking, sustainable agriculture, and large-scale installation art. Rankin co-directs the Atlas What Lab, a space for experimental game and interaction design. His cooperative card game, Ravine, which began in a TAM game design class, later became one of the most popular card game Kickstarters of 2017. Alongside Matt and Lisa Bethencourt, he is the co-creator of BusyWork, which won the 2017 IndieCade Media Choice Award. In 2018, both games were selected for exhibition at the XOXO Festival. Rankin also mentors in the Atlas BTU Lab, which stands for Blow Things Up. He holds a Master of Science from the Atlas CTD program and a Bachelor of Arts in Environmental Studies from CU Boulder. So what does CTD stand for? Yeah, um, it stands for Creative Technologies and Design. So it's basically uh, kind of a design within kind of a creative engineering discipline. And, you know, people get mad about being like, well, all engineering is creative, but specifically around uh, development of creative tools and helping artists and uh, content creators use uh, fancy stuff. So a lot of my focus in, in my master stuff was like making weird art with technology in it. That's about as general as it gets, but yeah. <laughs> Well, that was quite a bit of a uh, mouthful of a description there. You're welcome. I I wrote, I mean, someone fancier than me wrote that, but no, I, they made me write that. Well, I, I have to admit that was a direct rip from, from your words off of the website, <laughs> <laughs> which which is what we do 50% of the time. Yeah, congratulations. So, yeah. so Danny, that's what you have done, but who are you? Yeah, so I... Uh, I grew up in Colorado. I joined the military out of high school. Uh, I was a Farsi linguist in the Air Force. I'm a musician, uh, kind of a long time coming. Uh, Both my parents are artists and designers. They have their own business uh, making signs, Uh, so like storefront signage. So I got into fabricating stuff when I was a kid, basically sanding letters and painting, you know, big signage pieces and kind of installing big storefront signage all growing up and then uh, did Intel stuff in the military for six years got out taught music for a while worked in an Apple store for a while went back to school finished my undergrad and then I had already been teaching some graphic design stuff for a while so I just kind of hung out at CU until someone let me teach a class and then they had to give you a job at that point? <laughs> yeah, basically, I started teaching one class, and then I guess they liked what I was doing, so now they let me teach a bunch of classes, and I work here full-time now. But, uh, yeah, other than that, I, I do a bunch of – I kind of get bored easily, so I thought for a long time I was going to be a farmer. I did a bunch of thesis work on, like, little robots for agriculture, and I'm a musician, and I like building, you know, music technology and, you know, electrocuting myself, so – I think that's prerequisite for the 
people on this podcast probably, right? I, I think we've talked multiple times about <laughs> <laughs> shock stories. Actually, we can go into that right now. <laughs> so, Danny, what is your the worst elect, uh, worst time you ever... Uh, I wouldn't say electrocuted because you would be dead. Yeah. Um, shocked yourself. Had a current pass through a small section of my body. Yes, um, that did not result in you dying. One time I was... You know, it's all pretty classic. It's not anything really uh, glamorous. I was on a, on a ladder, and I was trying to unwire a light because I hated these lights that were in my our previous office that we were working in and the facilities maintenance people wouldn't let me turn the breaker off so I was like well maybe if I insulate myself really well and stand on this fiberglass ladder and try not to touch both wires at the same time um, I can I can disconnect this wire and then rewire it into these track lights that I was trying to install. we basically just Nobody lets us do anything ourselves. They always want us to, like, have the university uh, come in and have a contractor do it or whatever, and, and I'm never really happy with the work they do. So I get fed up with these things and climb into the ceiling, and that day I did that. And uh, I touched two wires together, locked my arm out, and pushed myself off the ladder under the ground. It was pretty exciting. So, yeah. <laughs> I was about to say, what, what part of that process failed, and it was the touch two wires part? <laughs> yeah, no, we were getting to that point. Everything was working really well. Everything was like I had already rewired the lights. I got them apart without getting shocked. Everything was great. And then I was just like putting a wire net back on to reconnect the wires in the little conduit box that was up there. And somebody was like, hey, Danny. And I went, huh? Uh, yeah. It's like, <laughs> wasn't too bad. I was only a couple feet up in the air and I kind of like fell down, but it wasn't tremendous. A little fuzzy feeling in the hand for a day or two. <laughs> Cheers to that. Indeed. So um, you, you uh, spend most of your time working in the Atlas Institute, correct? Yeah, yeah. I work in the Atlas Institute, which is kind of this weird... Nobody really knows what it does because it's supposed to be this super interdisciplinary thing, which it is. It's part of the engineering department at CU Boulder. But it's an institute that was originally set up to kind of house faculty and students and research projects that don't fit neatly into any uh, boxes, to say. So we've got, you know, artists who do art with code, and we have people that do uh, tech tattoos. So they're mixing, like, mechanical engineering with you know, human biology, and we have people that do weird interactive textile design for both art and function, and it's a cool mixture of folks, but it's definitely a lot of people that probably their whole careers felt like they didn't fit in anywhere else, uh, but they're wicked smart, and they do some cool projects, and I'm lucky to get to hang out and absorb some of their smarts via osmosis. You know, I always, I always felt that um, the engineering program that I went through, and Parker can probably... Uh, echo this, but it's just so damn rigid and and stiff. There's there isn't room for creativity, and there isn't room for the ability to just go do something you want to do. Uh, even the labs were you know locked unless you were in the right class that had the right code for that you know lab to go do those things. So it's it's really refreshing to see something or a location where people can you know merge the two, like the art and technology and and creativity on top of that. Totally. It's it's a weird place, and it's it's a great place. And, you know, we have an engineering program here, which is super great. Like, it does really great work and turns out good students. But it is very much within those kind of rigid boundaries. And we kind of attract a lot of those students that get a little burned by that sort of 
environment. They don't feel like they, they necessarily want to take that path. So they come to Atlas and they find that there's a lot of other students that feel that way. On the, on the downside, and I, you know, I'm not going to rip on engineers. I like engineers. Uh, but a lot of the time, there's this like grouchy, like, well, you're not doing the real thing because you didn't have to sit around and do three semesters of this dumb circuit design bullshit. And you, you don't know what it's like. And we're like, well, we made a sculpture that lights up. And it was fun. <laughs> and, um, and we kind of get a lot, of, uh, a lot of guff from some engineering. But I think it's a lot of it is birthed out of good-natured jealousy of being like, I wish I had been making sculptures that lit up. So yeah, <laughs> I don't yeah. I don't hold it against him too much. I, I have a story like that um, where I was uh, I, I went to University of Texas and I was um, I, I worked for the EE department and so I was actually delivering I guess boxes of paperwork somewhere and I went next to the uh, communications department building and I saw a, a lady and she had a puppy and I'm like why does someone have a puppy so I asked her. And they had show and tell. Yes. <laughs> in college. <laughs> and I was just so blown away by the fact that there's show and tell at college. I was just like, that doesn't make any sense. Which was, I wanted show and tell so I could bring my dog. Exactly, right? Like, <laughs> your first reaction is like, that's not college. You're not doing college. And then secretly, you're like, I wish that. I wish I had show and tell. Yeah. So it's like, <laughs> no, I, and that's the, totally the vibe from a lot of these. They're like, you know, your students, like the TAM program is a Bachelor of Science in Engineering, but it's very cross-disciplinary. So we basically, their engineering chops have to be pretty hot. Most of them, it's, it's computer science type chops, although some people are more into the, the circuit building or the mechanical stuff. Um, but then they have to mix that up with some creative aesthetic work and a lot of like uh, critical social perspective work. And that's kind of the big thing that we try and mix into the, the undergrad is that they don't just learn some sort of, you know, trade, so to speak, within engineering. Like it, they're not just mastering a particular engineering discipline. They're figuring out the why behind it and how to use it for weird stuff or, or for artistic stuff, too. So what kind of degree do you get out of the Atlas program? Then? So, yeah, we have a whole kind of menu. We got a certificate in uh, creative technologies, which is kind of open to all majors, like regardless of what college you're housed in, and a minor, which is really similar, minor in technology, arts, and media, which is kind of like an additional thing that anybody from any discipline from arts and humanities to business and finance can can jump in on. And then we have a Bachelor of Science in Technology, Arts, and Media, which is pretty new, but we've got, I guess we started two and a half years ago, and we've got about 300 students in that. And then we have a couple of master's programs, uh, the Creative Technologies and Design program that I went through a while back, and then another one called... Um, it's ICTD. There's so many acronyms. Acronyms make me feel insane. Y'all, y'all went to engineering school. Engineers love acronyms. I don't. I'll, I'll let to <laughs> drop another one, another acronym. So what? Do, what do you think of? Um, what, what's the one? Uh, science, technology, STEM. So what? How does Atlas fall into or STEAM or yeah, STEM I mean, or whatever? I am so tired of people being like, "This is important," because I'm like, "Yeah, obviously it's important." Um, Atlas is big on that, right? Like, especially the A and the STEAM thing, like being like, yeah, we really think the arts is super important into that mixture. But I don't even know that we would just say, like, we like this STEM world. 
it's a hot. It doesn't wave. matter. Yeah, it's we look at we have researchers that work in Atlas that do specifics on K twelve STEM education, especially in like underserved communities, and that's a big part of what Atlas's original uh, mission was about. Was basically like expanding learning opportunities and basically mixing technology into all these other places. But you know, ten years on, technology is already mixed into all these other places. Uh, so you can be like, yeah, we've got Steam, it's great, but like, it's not that special to say that anymore. It should just be a given that we're trying to make that happen. There should be like, to me, what's missing is the critical piece, like what's going to get made with the technology you develop? Do you agree with the ethical implications of the, the stuff you're developing? We have so many um, computer science students that come through and they're like, I'm going to make a disruptive app or I'm going to make a... I don't know why that would Southern accent in that example, but uh, <laughs> I, I want to... I'm going to make a Facebook or a Twitter or whatever. I'm like, please don't. We have, I don't feel like we even need the ones we have, right? <laughs> I don't know that I want you to make the new Facebook and Twitter. Can we? If, can you invent something and get rid of the existing ones? But that's just my grouchy oldness. But yeah, there's a lot of Atlas which is trying to mix some of that critical stuff in, and that's that's actually the place where I do the most of that is in games because a lot of students come in and they're like, I want to make video games because I love video games, which is a great way to attract students. But then we make them play dumb art games and weird like social critique games, and we make them spend a whole semester doing nothing but making pen and paper tabletop games. And um, yeah, we weed It's nothing out, like Call of Duty, right? Yeah, no, we weed out the kids that just want to make a first-person shooter in that first semester pretty quick. So, <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> so, so you actually teach a whole class on game design, right? Yeah, we actually have now. So we just uh, Matt Bethencourt, who's the my co-director of this the lab. Which good pronunciation on the lab there, Stephen. Yeah, the the what? The elongated A's are important. Also, that's not an acronym. That's just the name of the lab. Well, there was uh, there was three A's in there, so <laughs> I figure I had to. It's important, but yeah. So we run this kind of experimental games lab. And we've gotten it to where we're trying to make it almost like a track within TAM. So we have like three, coming up on four courses that are all game related. There's a design and a development sequence. So you do like the theory of games and then you do hard like digital development stuff. And then we have a critical perspective, which is like games as social critique, games as art, games as media. It's like a media studies one. And then one of our really good friends who works in a different lab which if y'all are ever up here, y'all need to check this place out. It's called the Media Archaeology Lab, which is on campus, and all they do is keep old computers and video game systems operating so you can, like, play old media from the 60s and 70s and 80s. And um, she's trying to run a class right now called An Experimental History of Digital Video Games, which is another, like, history and media studies elective where you basically play old video games for like a whole semester and then just write and talk about it and i'm like best course idea ever that so. sounds like when you're a kid <laughs> and you want to become a game tester mm -hmm. but the actual life of a game tester is pretty miserable yeah it sounds like that i want to play video games and then you have to write like a 10 page paper on it exactly and that's <laughs> once again they're just trying to weed out people that don't really love suffering um, it's because that's all key to any of this, right? It's like that's what college is suffering. I, that's the other thing is that like why engineers get bent out of shape about us being like show and tell and light up sculptures. They're like, you haven't suffered like I've suffered for this. And we're like, <laughs> you know, it's funny. It's funny because as as you keep going, what's going through my head is just the entire time. It's like when you're developing a new chorus, 
it's almost like the first requirement is like, what would piss off a really traditional engineer? Let's oh, teach yeah. that, you know? Yeah, we're all about that. Um, pissing people <laughs> off. The whole, the blow things up lab, like that's why the lab is named that because we just like to take people's ideas of what a space should be or a program should be and kind of, you know, detonate it. And also because people literally destroy a lot of stuff in the lab, which is fine. That's 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 awesome. So you actually run those labs, right? Um, so the the what lab? Yes, the BTU lab. I did for a while in different capacities, um, and now I just kind of my office is in here, like it's where I'm at right now, uh, and I kind of unofficially am a lab grown up. Uh, I guess is probably the best way to put it. I hang out and find out when people are breaking things and stop them from breaking them. Hopefully, I was about to say, what is the most dangerous thing? It's honestly in the Atlas BTU lab. Not that dangerous. <laughs> I mean, the equipment load is actually pretty small. I mean, there's some 3D printers. There's a a big laser cutter. There's a small bed CNC, and there's a wood shop. You know, table saw, bandsaw, belt sander, that kind of stuff. But it's all packed into a really small space that is really not set up well. Uh, for that, it wasn't designed to be a wood shop. It was designed to be a computer lab. And then they're like, we should put you in this space. And we were like, well, okay, it's more square footage. Uh, but there's not great ventilation and, and there's not a lot of room. So really the danger is other human beings. Those are the most dangerous things uh, in the BTU <laughs> the lab. The most dangerous game. Unaware students, basically, is the most <laughs> dangerous equipment. Yeah, and they're just like, do you think I could use a soldering iron to tattoo my body? I'm like, Absolutely. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> Should you? I'm not sure, but I'm sign not. this waiver first. Yeah, and that's what the BTU lab is very open ended. Like you compare it to a lot of even like uh, community hacker spaces that aren't you know university based. There's a lot of rules and it's pretty structured. And here it's very, very open. I wouldn't say frustratingly open, but it does leave a lot of room for mistakes and. And learning through blowing stuff up. Um, and it's different so, than we have a great uh, makerspace on the other side of campus called the Idea Forge, very tightly regulated. <laughs> I thought you were going to say we have a great nurse that's like right across. Oh, no. The yeah, hall. we have a first aid kit. <laughs> yeah, I was it. like, say, uh, what do you call a uh, carpenter that learns by his mistakes? His name's Nine Finger Joe. <laughs> Nine Finger Joe, or, or maybe fewer. Yeah, right. I don't know. The clinic's like a block away. It's fine. We've had one major injury in like four years, and that guy's dad was a plastic surgeon and sewed his hand back together without any fees. So it worked out great. Um, and that's not a joke. That it's all a true story. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Let's wheel, let's wheel it back for a second because we're kind of painting a little bit of a dark light on this. Yeah. <laughs> on the no, no. Like honestly, the the reason that our philosophy is all student led is because we just think that's a, a really good way for certain types of students to feel like they can approach engineering and circuit building and hacking without you know this kind of intimidating layer to the front. Some people respond fine to that, right? They're like, I'll jump through the hoops and I will check the box and go to the class and learn all the things. And some people are like, I'm not even going to try. And I think you lose their perspectives if you don't find some spaces to like kind of coax those people over. And that's a lot of what the BT Lab is about. It's going, hey, you don't feel like you fit in in that world of like kind of a very stereotypical engineer or whatever. We've got some of the same tools. We've got some of this expertise. We have a lot of people here that 
that want to help and make weird stuff. Do you want to come hang out here and just learn how to solder a board or like learn how to fabricate? And uh, just by giving them that freedom, we find that we get a very different student base. We get uh, really like Tam and Atlas in general, both super high gender parity in terms of engineering programs. Or like over 50% female in the program, so, which is like pretty high for most engineering programs. And I don't know, we just get a lot of people that maybe they started in aerospace or they started in CS and then they realized they didn't want to do a career doing that one thing and they found a place where a bunch of people go, I have 10 careers doing a bunch of little things and none of them pay me that well, but I add them all up and I'm happy. And that's you know, I'm definitely in that boat myself. So I've enjoyed being here. Very cool. So um, materials class, I'm, I'm really interested in that because when I hear materials, I think materials science. And I'm pretty much uh, guaranteed that it's not materials science, right? It's not. You know, like I love materials science and there's a part of me that wants to, to keep that at the forefront. But the real thing that that course does is take a bunch of students that basically do only theoretical digital work, which is a lot of what the the TAM program is, and just makes them do hands-on work with wood, metal, ceramics, plastics, even like fiber weaving and and kind of mixed material, concrete, mineral. They they kind of run the gamut and just get their hands on a bunch of different things. And they make a lot of, I don't want to say bad projects, but I mean, for some, y'all make stuff. You know, the first thing you ever make out of anything is kind of like you love it, and it's an ugly baby that only a parent could love. <laughs> and uh, it's definitely true of these projects. Like, you get a lot of pretty bad woodworking in metal. And, <laughs> but, you know, the whole point of the course is this, like, broader survey. And the big lessons are more like, you know, you may think that you've been told your whole life you should hire somebody else to make this thing for you. But if you're willing to go through being frustrated for a long period of time and, you know, mess stuff up and learn how to use a particular material, you can basically make whatever you want. And um, not to discount what people that really master a trade do. In fact, much the opposite. I want to help these students gain an appreciation for what trades are and the value of those things are. Because I think so many students in universities, for one, actually don't want to be here i think a lot more people would prefer to have gone into a trades career and i also think that there shouldn't be as much of a boundary between the two i don't think you should be like well you're a tradesperson, so you just learn how to do metal or plumbing or woodworking or whatever you should get to think about interesting stuff just because you're a plumber doesn't mean you shouldn't get the opportunity to like hang out and talk about poetry and on the flip side just because you're you know, learning computer science or engineering or writing code or making art doesn't mean you shouldn't have to, like, get your hands dirty and learn how to weld some stuff together. So that's the motivation of that class. And it's a weird class. I I don't know. I, I love what comes out of it. And the students always kind of reflect that a lot of them find a new hobby, you know, out of it, whether it's learning to weld or woodworking or, you know, I have one person that got super weird and eye-rolly when I was like, we're going to weave and do embroidery and learn how to, like, knit and tie knots and do all this stuff with fiber work. And now they're like, yeah, actually, I just hang out and knit and do embroidery. It's kind of like frat bro, dude. And I was like, yeah, dude. <laughs> I love this image of this frat boy just hanging out at his frat. Everybody's playing beer pong, and he's just out there, like, embroidering a blanket of, like, beer pong stuff. 
it's all his frat bros now have sweaters that he's made. I know, right? And they have like tapestries in the house that are like, crush it, brah. But, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's great. You know, it's 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 really awesome to hear that because what everything that you've been describing here, I think, is what is missing from a good traditional engineering degree. Uh, great example. What I went through myself not once was I required to ever touch or learn about a circuit board. Not once. And I did traditional electrical engineering. I Everything that I learned about board stuff, I had to do myself. And if, if I wasn't doing that on my own because I had my own projects, I just wouldn't have learned that, you know? And it's ridiculous in my mind. Yeah, it really, it really depends on the programs. Um, when I was going through school... Um, I always complained about, oh, why do I have to take English or why do I have to take, you know, all these history classes? Well, looking back on it, those were some of the most, in my opinion, most important classes that I took as an engineer, as in I got to meet, you know, people that were not engineers and talk to them. And I learned how, to, like philosophy classes, like, oh, that it teaches you how to think differently and look at other sources and this kind of, and that kind of stuff. And I think uh, a lot of engineering programs are missing that kind of stuff as well. It seems that uh, TAM takes it to another level of that kind of experience. Yeah, for sure. And it's it's definitely an ongoing experiment because, you know, at the end of it, there's sometimes this fear that we're making a lot of, like, you know, jacks of all trades but masters of none. Um, but really our goal is to just make masters of multiple things at once so rather than be like you don't really get good at anything i kind of actually just want to churn out these weird unicorns that are both like really skilled with a, an engineering skill set and also think a lot about engineer like engineering outside of the box think about arts and culture and how they can kind of like you know one of the big things that our director throws around, and, and I'm a believer in it, is that the most interesting stuff happens at the intersections, basically. He says that a lot, which is a, I, a good way to look at it. Like, It's not really what's happening in the core, what's expected status quo spaces. It's at the weird spots that those things overlap, and that's kind of how Atlas is supposed to to work, and, and by and large does work. I think it, it is a pretty cool place to be. And I actually think... Um, it is wrong to think about going to college and special, especially in engineering, especially electrical engineering, specializing in specific fields. You don't know what's going to happen 10 years after you graduate, where, where you end up. Like when I came out of college, I went and pulled wire at an oil and gas company. That's not embedded design that I went to school for. <laughs> no. I mean, you know, there's some, uh, there's some wire, but otherwise. <laughs> yes. It carried electrons. That was the only thing that was similar. Well, okay. So basically, so, I did power electronics when I at college. <laughs> let, let, let's define this real quick. When we say specialization in in an engineering field, that means that you took like three or four three hour classes towards something. So that means that you've studied it a little bit more than you've studied everything else. I mean, I'm not going to say I'm, I don't want to downplay someone's specialization, but it doesn't mean that you've spent two thousand hours studying something. It means that you've spent 50, you know. Yeah, absolutely right. Exactly. Like, you're never going to be a master of anything coming out of college, and it's unfair for culture or society or for students or parents or anybody to put this burden on a student and say, like, you better be ready to basically be the, you know, 
running your entire career right out of college. I'm like, no, you're gonna, you're still gonna kind of suck at everything. You're gonna suck slightly less. You're gonna have a little bit of an idea where you're headed, but I mean, you know, it's not fair to ex- expect that university is gonna do that. I actually. I throw the idea around a lot. I think it's true. We have a lot of computer science and code-related projects that come out of here. And I think that code, not as a not as a pejorative at all, is the blue-collar career field of the future. Like, writing code is not going to be this, like, specialized, fancy, you know, high-end job. It's going to be a necessity, and you're going to have to be good at it in order to make it happen. That's going to be the new trade. Yeah, and a lot of people come into the university and they ask for that. They're, they go, I want my kid to leave here and get this high-paying code job. And I'm like, they shouldn't. you shouldn't pay university tuition to get those skills. You can get those skills mostly for free on the Internet. You could go to like a six-month or one-year incubator program and be ready to rock. And colleges are afraid of getting killed by those programs. And I'm like, well, they shouldn't be trying to compete with that. That's a total different pipeline for work you know those people are getting trained on a really specific job and going right into the workforce and i think that's awesome but that's not necessarily the place of what the university is supposed to be doing and it gets muddled especially in engineering because there really is a lot of that at least theoretical specialization like you're going to be an engineer and you're going to take this exam and you're going to go and work in a cubicle and engineer this shit and you know that's true for some people but it's kind of a miserable existence for a lot of people i don't think that's where a lot of people want to end up um, or at least that's not the only place they want to end up. Lots of people, I mean, I love sitting down and spending hours banging out a circuit design or, for me, more like modeling and CAD work. But, you know, I also want to do interesting things and, you know, I don't want to say express myself, which feels cliche, but I think a lot of our students want that too, and it's not fair to just go, you better work hard and be the best and get out there and get a job because this costs a lot of money. But, yeah, then again, college costs a lot of money, so... I don't know the answer. I don't think anyone does. So uh, I'm, I'm curious, uh, you know, we've been talking a lot about your students and what you do for the students. How about you? What are some uh, projects or fun things that you have done? Yeah, so I do a lot of weird stuff. Um, for a while, I was obsessed with pneumatic tubes. Uh, I, when I started uh, hanging out in the lab, the first thing I made was this beer fridge that sucks cans of beer out of the fridge and then shoots them around a series of tubes in the room and deposits them on my desk, like, two feet from where the fridge is. It's really just a laziness machine. Um, and, and, but but, it, but it, it shakes them up, it right? It shakes up a beer that explodes on your desk. It's really a bad design. It's a bad invention. <laughs> I made a bad thing. Um, and I've always been interested in, in those systems. So in the lab, actually hanging out, partially my, I have one terminal in my office, but there's a couple others around the lab. It's a pneumatic ball uh, transfer system that uses color coding to direct where messages go, and it's it's called the Internet of Tubes. It's based on that kind of quote from that uh, that famous Alaskan senator. Yeah, it was like the Internet is like a series of tubes, and we were hanging out and drinking, and we were like, "What if the Internet was a series of tubes?" And then I was like, "What if I could finish grad school by making an Internet that's a series of tubes?" <laughs> <laughs> and I did. Yeah. Uh, it's a funny it barely works I mean it it's got all the problems of the internet plus all the problems of tubes and pneumatics so stuff gets broken in it balls like shatter parts of the system like letters so the whole thing you basically 
you can load up to 16 ping pong balls that each have a, a letter on them. So you can send 16 character messages, and then you put a, a colored ball at the top, which determines what of, like, three uh, ports that it gets forwarded to. And there's a little color sensor in this thing. But there's no wired connection from any of the ports to the center hub. It's just air pressure. It's like uh, old leaf blowers that I gutted and put inside of some housings. And then uh, there's just a, several hundred feet of a mixture of PVC and clear acrylic tubing. It's all kind of done up in weird ways and goes through the walls and ceilings and it's all around the lab. And um, the colored ball goes in, it triggers a gate transfer, and then all of the message balls pass through and end up at the terminal space, which is really cool when it works. Uh, and it's also really cool when it doesn't work because if it rejects a message, what I call the 404 basically, uh, error, it just sprays ping pong balls out all over the laboratory. <laughs> <laughs> Which is fun. Uh, it's fun for me, but all of the people that are like in the lab are just getting hit with ping pong balls. Tonight. Is that how your? Is that at the end of the year your your surveys? Class was awesome, but I got hit in the head with a ping pong ball. Yeah, Danny made uh, made me clean up a lot of balls. Basically, is pretty much how it works out. Now, there was a lot of jokes when I was doing those projects. Like, do you have a ball obsession? And I was like, well, obviously, I'm obsessed with balls, uh, but I couldn't just say that in my my master's presentation. I have a ball obsession. But there's a lot of jokes about balls that go um, get passed around the lab. That's probably the biggest fun project that's around here right now, but I've done lots of weird other stuff. Um, a lot of kind of react. I was into like woven branches with lights and sound and kind of these like tracking where people are, and then it's almost like you have these weird synthetic animal noises and, and light reactions that occur when people interact with these fake nature scenes. And we also just make a lot of functional stuff around the lab that breaks tables and CNC rigs and various whatever things. That's the great thing about the, the BTU lab is when we say do, do it yourself, we mean that about almost anything. If someone has a complaint, they're like, I don't know. I don't think we have a shelf that does. I'm just like, cool, do it yourself. Um, just make it, and uh, if if it if it breaks, then we'll have somebody else make it next time. But so there's a lot of weird storage solutions. The categorization system of everything, like all the labels on everything, are way overly literal. They're all like pokey stabby things, and you're like, what? What's in this? Oh, pokey stabby things, like knives and spudgers and stuff. And it's like it's a very uh, different world than like the very efficient, clean, organized world that I actually sometimes really want to live in that I'm like, oh, I hang out with engineers, like real, like more, what's the word I want to use? Traditional? Traditional or, or just, um, yeah, traditional Anal? is probably the best. But yeah, just people that like <laughs> things that are clean and organized and, and the way that things should be, which I love, but that's definitely not the BTU lab. And sometimes I'm like, man, you think we could just get some drawers and just label the drawers? as like, you know, what all the values of the resistors are in these drawers, and they're like, I don't know, people will find it. <laughs> like, <laughs> it's kind of insane. Yeah, the director of our lab, actually, uh, uh, Alicia Gibb, she has a degree, she has a, her master's in library science, so she's all about, like, organization and stuff. But, yeah, the students that are in the lab, they just kind of wing it as they go along, which is both charming and makes me feel totally insane most of the time. So <laughs> there's a there's a whole list of uh, the the student or 
I guess, are they complete or the, the projects that the students are, are working on or have worked on? That's all up on the website, I believe. Yeah, we encourage anybody. So the, the lab is this community space. People can join if they live here and they want to be part of the community. They can apply for membership and kind of get in on the space. Uh, if they're students, there's no real cost for them involved with that. And then they get access to the blog, and we basically tell people, hey, if you're working on a project, go on the blog and just write a blog entry about it. We are very kind of open with that. And, uh, yeah, it's definitely not complete. There's a lot of weird half-completed stuff hanging out around here. And Atlas tries to do a lot of good documentation of, of quality senior final projects. But, yeah, the BTU Lab blog is full of half-completed weird projects that people have made. One of my favorite ones that's out there that we just started working on fixing is this cat printer, and they just hacked one of those little Amazon uh, order the thing buttons. You just press the button, and it automatically... And they re- they redirected it, so now it just finds a Google image search result of a cat, and then it makes it print out of the printer in the lab. <laughs> so it's just a button that if you press it, a cat comes out of the printer. Uh, and for a while, there's just like hundreds of black and white images of cats from the internet all over the lab and we had to be like please stop printing cats unless you're going to take the cats with you um, you don't want to be a cat person <laughs> I know and you know you search cat on the internet you never know if you're actually going to get a cat you got to be careful the internet's a dangerous place it, it, it almost sounds like it would be really fun to do a podcast from the lab where where you just ask students for the ideas that they have it just have That's them actually a really good spit idea. it out you know that would be really fun yeah it's uh you get some pretty weird and bizarre stuff but it all depends on some some of the students come in don't I think they've been denied their creative muscles for so long that it takes them a while to realize just how weird we really want them to get. They're like, well, I don't know. I could make a drone that flies in the air and uh, takes pictures of things. I'm like, nope, that already exists. That's boring. Can you make a drone that, I don't know, uh, squirts ketchup all over people? Because I'm interested in the ketchup drone. And they're like, okay, I can make a ketchup I'm like, I don't know what you can make. Make a... Get weird. I don't know. That's pretty much the whole philosophy, right? Just get weirder. I want weirder projects. I don't want you to be like... A drone that squirts mayo. Yeah. Mayonnaise drone. I mean, I'm not trying to like... That's a war crime. I don't think you're allowed to do that in America. (laughs) (laughs) You got to be careful with that. Ethical research here only. But yeah, no... There's a there's a club that was formed around trying to wire up a shopping cart to autonomously go to the coffee shop and get coffee and bring it back to the lab. And it never went anywhere, but they did make a lot of weird electric vehicles that we crashed around in the building for a while, which is fun. Uh, but autonomous shopping carts, apparently, quite difficult. Who knew? Go, go figure. <laughs> <laughs> So, so other people can get involved in the lab, right? Yeah, so people that are community members um, can apply for membership. The BTU Lab website, btulab.com. We've got the whole about page, which talks about basically application. And it's typically just um, university, students, staff, faculty. But we do have some people that are just community members, either like former graduates or people that were around that just want to, they still live in Boulder and they want to come hang out. And as long as people want to be involved and actually be part of the community, we're all on board. The one thing we try and avoid, where that like, we we 
talk to people if they put on their application. A lot of people are like, I just want to come in and use the laser cutter. And I'm like, well, there's better laser cutters and better spaces for that. Even on campus and in our community, we've got like a couple of really great hacker spaces. And I was going to say earlier, like we've got a place called the Idea Forge, which is just amazing. Like way bigger budget, way more space, incredible equipment, much more tightly regulated, much less community oriented and more like tool use, tool library kind of style in a lot of ways. And that's not really our bag. We're more about kind of bringing together weirdos and misfits to hack weird stuff. So if people are just like, oh, I just want to come and use your tools, I'm like, man, our tools are not that good. You should go somewhere else if you just want to use tools. Uh, but if people want to kind of participate with the whole weirdness of what's happening, man, we're always looking for more folks to come and hang out with us. So. Do, uh, do you or any of the uh, participants show in any art galleries or do anything more on the artistic side? Yeah, you know... Um, there's stuff that gets shown in Atlas. There's a couple of people that, uh, PhD people and works that we've done. I've shown some stuff with uh, Matt and Lisa at the Boulder Canyon Gallery and at festivals. And there's a few people, Jeff, Jiffer Harriman, who works out of the BTU Lab, uh, local kind of sound artist. And he's done some really amazing installations. And he comes from like a real hard uh, electrical EE background. Um, circuit design he went to Stanford to do all that stuff and, and now he like makes weird musical instruments that turn environments and spaces into instruments based on uh, like sound and light input from a place so he did a thing in the Boulder Public Library where he turned their whole atrium into this weird percussion instrument with this controller that had uh, light shining in through skylights and if you blocked the lights it made all these little solenoids all over the room go off in cool patterns like there's a lot of people that do neat stuff in mostly within Boulder, but some people could take it further. We have a lab alum, uh, Karina Espinosa, who works out of Denver, and she does these weird, like, animates um, really creepy, like, baby dolls that she takes apart and then puts uh, electronics inside of them and makes them, like, move around in weird ways and freak people out in sculptures. She's amazing. Um, so there's a, there's a lot of... I think I've seen a movie yeah. like that before. Yeah. <laughs> Chucky. <laughs> yeah, no doubt, man. Um, yeah, and there's a group of students that are working on getting stuff into Meow Wolf. They're opening a Meow Wolf branch in Denver, uh, if you all are familiar with that. And um, there's a group that have been making this weird set of robotic fish that's swimming around in a big robotic aquarium that's full of uh, baby oil. And then the, there's a little, like, Arduino fish that swim around inside of the tank, which hopefully will be cool. I don't know what the end result's going to look like. But <laughs> Messy. yeah, there's all sorts of <laughs> cool stuff happening here. Awesome. So you do game design. I do. Has, yeah. has Steven talked to you about the game that we're working on? No. So we're building a text adventure game. And I only have one question is if there was one thing you could tell someone about game design, what would it be? Uh, get more people to play your game before you say it's done. There you go. Yeah, the, <laughs> it's so easy to get like head down with just the people that know your project. The more strangers you can get to come and test your game out, the better it's going to be. And and then the other thing that I always tell my students is just kill your babies, right? You think this thing is so great and you love it, and then you show it to five people and none of them like it or react to it. Sometimes you just got to kill your babies. They always freak out because I don't ever tell them the last part of that. Uh, uh, right up front. I'm just like, the first thing you should know, kill your babies. All right, open your books. No. <laughs> <laughs> we don't have babies. Yeah. 
because you killed them all. Uh, they, yeah, it's it's really with game design. It's like you can't hang on to something that's not fun. I have so many students that love their ideas, but they they purposefully don't test it with people because they're like, I tested with one person, they didn't like it. I'm afraid of that rejection, so I'm just going to keep going and work really hard on my game. Maybe if I just work hard by myself for another 25 hours on this, it'll be good. And I'm like, it's still not good, and you're not getting those hours of your life back. So, yeah, lots of people to test. And uh, if it's not fun or if it doesn't meet your goals, it doesn't have to be fun, right? Some games aren't meant to necessarily always be fun, but think about what your big goals are, and if it doesn't meet that, just cut that stuff off. Those are my big game design tips. Hot tips. (laughs) Well, great. Um, Parker, do you have anything uh, you'd like to add to that? No, I actually thank you for that. Um, I think we have a whole community of people that we can ship our game out once we get something working on it. Yeah, man. Dude, people love um, testing games. I was talking to a buddy of mine who's a game designer. He works in a, the community hackerspace at the library here in Boulder. And uh, we were talking about Kickstarter specifically for games. And there's everybody puts everything on Kickstarter because, you know, money is good. But the games community like the people that are out there just want to play games there's people that are just like i'd love to test your game i want to tell you about your game i want to play this game like people are ready to do that and that's there's so many people that are going to like help refine that although you know i kickstarted this game and as much as a great feeling as it is to have this successful game and people like it people play it man don't read the comments sometimes people are people are mean on the internet you're just like, well, I don't know if you've even played it. They're like, this is some amateur operation. That's just taking too long to ship this. And I'm like, oh, my God. You guys haven't made a game. You guys need to leave me alone. Um. <laughs> but 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 you did have the number one card game on Kickstarter in 2017, right? Yeah, no, we did really well, and uh, it was really good. But I think that, you know, it did well because – so I, I basically developed it and then – Sold the game effectively to this uh, to my now business partner Matt Sisson, and um, and he worked really hard and got a lot of people involved to like up the production value of the whole thing and get it looking really good and get the Kickstarter looking amazing and get a really good video and all this. And I think people saw that and they went, "Oh, this must be a big corporation. These guys must have their act together." And we're like, "No, it's literally just like two of us who are doing this. We just made it look really good and spent the money to make it happen up front." Uh, that's so. sort of the story of of like thousands of Kickstarters where that's the story of Oculus. Yeah. Uh, oh yeah, that's true. Yeah, yeah. Oculus <laughs> was basically they were or, they were basically looking to get you know bought by you know Facebook or at the time a a um, investment company, and so they spent the extra upfront money to make it look super legit, and basically they that whole Kickstarter was just for market fit analysis. I know, and it's just a, a kind of an amazing world we live in where you can make a product that doesn't exist with a bunch of renderings and theoretical testimonials, and some venture capitalists will still give you like $100,000 to go to your next round. I'm like, I don't really know that I like the way that that world works. I'd rather people have to actually show that, like patents, right? You're like, now you just patent an idea. You're like, oh, I have an idea. This phone's going to fold up and roll up into my pocket. Have you figured that out yet? No, but this idea belongs to us. And I'm like, I don't think you get to have that idea until you can prove that you actually can do it, right? You can't just say, 
oh, I know that this is a thing that we'll be able to do. Like, you have to show up with a working prototype before somebody should give give you intellectual property rights on anything. Yeah, did, didn't that change like six years ago where it was the first person to file the patent gets yep. the patent? Yeah. And that's what opened up this entire insanity of like patent wars between companies like basically poaching pieces of IP from one company and then suing each other and then rushing to like purchase a patent on something that they didn't even make. It's, it's just... Patent, don't get me started on that stuff. Our, our whole lab's philosophy is very much like default to open, uh, specifically with open source hardware, uh, partially because Alicia, who I mentioned earlier, is the founder of the Open Source Hardware Association. Uh, she's a she's a big shot with that. Uh, so that's a big part of our founding DNA is like, yeah, I'm not I'm not like anti patents, but I think there's a lot better ways to do development. And I think those laws are outdated and mostly just protect big companies and kind of screw over little manufacturers in a lot of ways. So I'm pretty I'm pretty anarchistic when it comes to that stuff. I'll rant all day, and I've already had three beers, so I probably shouldn't start that conversation. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, Danny, do you want to sign us out? Oh, actually, before we do that, <laughs> okay. um, where can people find out more about you and the Atlas Institute and TAM? Man, I'd love to pitch my website, but uh, I got <laughs> I got poached by this. Uh, you know those companies that have just robots that troll the internet for domains that expire? My domain expired, and I didn't renew it, and then they bought my website and tried to sell it back to me for like $2,000. So you can just find out about me on uh, the Atlas Institute. <laughs> uh, BTULab.com is a great place to go, atlas.colorado.edu. Um, and if you're interested in the game development side of what we do, we actually throw a big festival around experimental games and interactions every fall we're going to have the announcement for the next what festival hopefully that'll be up and live uh, but that's what.io w-h-a-a-a-t.io is kind of our lab website for that and uh, yeah you can be on the lookout for that in the coming days and weeks we'll start pulling applications for weird games and uh, yeah that's, that's pretty much me at Danny Rankin on Twitter, I uh, mostly just talk about my food that I'm eating on the on the toilet. <laughs> I mean, I talk about the food that I'm eating while I'm on the toilet. I don't eat a lot of food on the toilet. A little bit. You should come hang out in our Slack channel sometime. We have a lot of uh, listeners and engineers that are makers and of that sort in there. I'd love to. Shoot me an invite. Go. Cool. Will do. And so with that, Danny, do you want to sign us out? Sure. That was the Macrofab Engineering Podcast, and I was your guest, Danny Rankin. And we were your hosts, Parker Dillman. And Stephen Craig. Later, everyone. Take it easy. Thank you, yes, you, our listener, for downloading our show. If you have a cool idea, project, topic, or crazy engineering idea, let Steven and I know. Tweet us at MacFab, at Longhorn Engineer, or at Analog ENG, or email us at podcast at MacFab.com. Also, check out our Slack channel. If you're not subscribed to the podcast yet, click that subscribe button. That way you get the latest map episode right when it releases. And please review us wherever you listen, as it helps this show stay visible and helps new listeners find us.